Good morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> I would like to start off with an apology to specifically Summer, because I think I told her in San Francisco she wouldn't have to listen to me finally, and <laughs> here I am. Uh, so, sorry, Summer. Um, so, what I wanted to talk about this morning um, is the idea of confession and repentance. Um, if you're familiar with God's word at all, you realize that these are kind of cornerstone commandments that God requires from people who are going to follow him and love him, right? An acknowledgement uh, that you've messed up, that you've done things that God wouldn't have you to do. Um, but beyond that, that's kind of the confession component, right? That repentance, the idea is that when you make that acknowledgement, when you humble yourself in that way, that you would actually make changes in your life to show God that you don't want that for yourself anymore, right? And that really is, if we were going to give kind of a working definition to kind of either of those ideas, that's kind of how they play out, right? Confession is admitting the guiltiness of a fault or a crime, and repentance is turning away from that thing, right? That, that guilt and that crime. Um, and so it's not surprising to us then when we read a passage like in Proverbs uh, 28 in verse 13 that it would say this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, right? That the way that God as creator of all things has structured our existence in light of his person is that that truth will play out. That whoever is the type of person that does try to cover up their guiltiness prosperity will not be in their life. And sometimes that means that they won't be rich, how we often think of prosperity. They won't be like great landowners and have great businesses and have cool cars and things like that. But that's not the fullness of that statement. To prosper before the Lord is to find, as he says in Proverbs 28, find mercy, right? The one who does not cover up transgression, the one who does not forsake um, God's ways does find mercy. I think that's the true definition of prosperity is that you can stand before God, not in judgment condemned, but that you'll stand before him as one finding mercy, finding God's grace. That's a prosperous person. And to confess and to repent leads you towards that prosperity. And so you could go through a lot of other uh, texts in the Bible, a lot of other places where God speaks to this, and you could do a whole lesson on that. And look at these simple truths. But what I want to do today is take two people from the Bible that demonstrate this. Um, so if you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, that's where we'll start. Um, and it's important to kind of think about this for a second before we read this text. It is possible to have confession and not have repentance. You can admit that you've kind of blown it, that you've messed up, and then keep messing up, right? But it's not possible to repent and not confess, right? So some of us might make the mistake of admitting that we're faulty, that we're broken, and yet never commit ourselves to like changing and allowing God to work in us and to move forward, right? But a lot of us will like attempt to, to change without ever admitting that we were ever wrong in the first place. And we recognize that that's kind of a broken formula, right? 
And I think the people that we're looking at today are going to demonstrate this for us. Um, so in 1 Samuel 13, we'll uh, read a story about a guy named Saul. Uh, just because in Bible class we talked about a Saul, it's important, I guess, to say this is a different Saul. Um, this Saul is an Israelite king that God had actually like put into power. And he's ruling the kingdom of Israel. And so before we um, read this passage, I'll set up a little bit of the background here. Um, so Saul, when we read in 1 Samuel 13, he had become king about two years prior. And he had been reigning and he fought time and time again his enemies. Like in actual battles and actual wars, he was defending the Israelite kingdom, the Israelite people. And so now in this chapter, the Philistines are invading and they're attacking. And Saul only has a small kind of force of men to fight back with. Um, and you read in verses 5 through 7 that we're not going to read that they're like the small force of men that he does have, like they're deserting. Like they don't see victory. And so they're just kind of trying to save themselves. And so Samuel, who is a prophet and a priest, speaks to Saul and he tells Saul that like he needs to wait seven days and then he'll show up in Gilgal and he would offer sacrifices to God on their behalf so that when they go into battle, God would be with them, right? And so Samuel, as the, the prophet and the priest of God, was in a position to like communicate that to Saul. He wasn't speaking of his own volition. He was speaking for God. And as priest, he was the one that was supposed to do that, not Saul, right? So when you read in 1 Samuel 13, look at what happens here. Uh, beginning, we'll begin in verse 8, 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. He, being Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering before him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Okay, so like, let's look at this for a moment here, right? Like all the mechanics that I kind of offered some of the background end up playing out negatively for Saul, right? Like he waits the seven days, he gets anxious, he gets impatient, and so he decides to just kind of handle the offering himself, right? Which would have been inappropriate. The priest should have done that. But in his mind... The priest didn't keep his word. He didn't show up on the seventh day. And so, as Saul says, he had no choice but to do this, right? But you'll notice that the text makes it very clear to us that Saul should have been a little more patient because it reads, as soon as he did it, who shows up? Samuel, right? If he had just been a little more patient, maybe there's a lesson in there for us about patience and God's timing. 
But what we need to see in this is that when Saul does what's wrong here, and we can like debate up and down like Saul tried to do about like, was it wrong? The point was, it was wrong for him to do this. What does Samuel say to Saul and how does Saul react to that? Right? Samuel says exactly what we might expect him to say, right? Like, you should have waited for me. I told you I was coming, right? And he gives him the repercussions of him being impatient and being anxious and not trusting that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And that is to say that, you know what? You're not the type of man. You don't have the type of heart that God wants from his king. And so actually the kingdom that could have been yours forever is not going to be yours forever, right? Um, well, it's when Saul hears that that Saul says some things. Um, <clears throat> and rather, it's he says kind of, Saul reveals his heart and says things actually really by not speaking. <laughs> um, you'll notice at the end of verse 15, there's no retort. There's no like comeback from Saul. There's no anything. It just says like that was kind of the end of it. And Samuel goes on his way. I think there's a lot that's said by nothing being said here. Um, and what I want us to see in this, um, when you look at this text here, is that when Saul confronts Samuel with his explanation of like, well, I waited and you didn't show up and blah, 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 blah. Um, a lesson for us in this is that we should not make the mistake of Saul in trying to defend ourselves when we're in the wrong. You know, we make excuses. Um, we, we say like, well, I waited. I expected one thing to happen and actually this other thing happened. So you can't blame me for being thrown off and trying to make the best of a confusing situation. How many times could we say something like Saul with, about something God that, that God commands? And it's not exactly what we'd expect him to command. Or maybe we don't understand all the ins and outs of the command and how it's going to work out. And so we like kind of take it into our own hands a little bit and change things up a little bit. And ultimately it results in if we had just been a little more trusting, a little more patient, we would have seen God do what he said he was going to do, right? And so ultimately, if we choose to defend our wrong instead of just like confessing it when you're confronted with it, um, then the fruit of that moment won't be repentance and mercy and blessing but it'll be silence, like what we see in this text, that after he defends himself and Samuel says, you know what, the kingdom's not going to be yours, you know, da-da-da-da, there's nothing left for Saul to say, right? You know, a beautiful moment would have been the confession, and then the fruit of that would have been maybe a mercy from the Lord and maybe a restoration and a, a glorious battle that they would have won in some dramatic fashion, but we're just left with kind of reading into the silence that... Saul's heart kind of reveals for us that he's not willing to confess his sin. I'll give you an example of this. This is maybe um, a little uh, generic here, but if, if any of you have had siblings, inevitably you've gotten into fights with your siblings. And even if you don't have siblings, I had really close cousins that I'd get into fights with, like siblings. I know some of you share in that. Um, what happens in a typical kind of like relationship, especially when you're kids, is that you call one of them a name. Right? Like you say something that you think will hurt their feelings, and you're doing it because they did it first. Right? They called you something first, and so now you're going to really get them back, and you call them a name. But guess what? Their parents only hear you say the thing. Right? 
And so then your parents like rip into you for like calling them a name or saying whatever it is you said. And instead of just admitting that like you shouldn't have done that because you shouldn't have, what do you say? They did it first, right? Like they were the ones in the wrong. They made me do this. Isn't that what Saul's saying to Samuel? Like you didn't show up when you said you were going to show up. You made me do this, right? We've all done things like that. We've all defended our mess-ups, our sins, our guiltiness, when really we should have just confessed it, right? We should have just repented of it. Another example of this is in 1 Samuel 15. We're going to look at Saul again. I'm picking on Saul a little bit, but he just his life demonstrates this so clearly for us. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, this is a little bit of a longer reading here. Um, background before we read this, because we're going to pick up in verse 10. Um, Saul is again sent to a battle, to a war that the Lord wants him to have against the city of Amalek. And an important detail about this is God's going to give them victory over the city of Amalek. But part of this is that Saul is supposed to just destroy everything in the city of Amalek. You can see that in verse 3. So let's read in verse 10 here. The word of the Lord, or sorry, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared, speaking of the city of Amalek and its ruler, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, again, Samuel, right? Uh, and I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told uh, Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel said, uh, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Well, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of your Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, 
he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. All right, that was a long reading, but I hope you're able to follow kind of the sequence of events here, right? So he's supposed to kill and destroy everything in Amalek, but he doesn't. He spares Agag, the ruler. He spares the best of the sheep and of the oxen. And so it comes, that word, that uh, disobedience comes to Samuel by the Lord and says, like, you need to go confront Saul. And you need to have this really bad discussion with him about why he's disobeying me. And Saul gets there, I mean, Samuel gets there, and when Samuel sees, or Saul sees Samuel, Saul says, I've done it, aha, I've followed the Lord. And to his credit, he went to the battle, right? Like, that would have been hard to, you know, if you had sent me to battle, I might have deserted, you know, like, he was brave enough to go to the battle. Like, he did devote some things to destruction, but you notice, it says that they were the worthless things. Um, but he keeps some things. He doesn't follow the fullness of the word of the Lord, which is to say he doesn't follow the word of the Lord at all. Um, and so Samuel confronts him with this. But did you notice what happens in this sequence? You know, as it relates to confession and repentance, you get a little bit more than the first time we saw him in chapter 13. But like, what's the problem with his confession and what's the problem with the repentance that Saul gives in this, this story? He acknowledges that something wrong has happened, but who's to blame for the wrong? The people are to blame for the wrong. He says, you're right, This we blew it, but it's because I listened to the people. The people wanted to do this. It's the people. And Samuel's response to him is like, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Has God not made you the king and given you the commandment to do this? Right? Don't we all do that sort of thing sometimes too? Like maybe sometimes we say like in chapter 13, right? Like what we talked about. Maybe we do that. But maybe sometimes we're more like this story where we can acknowledge some like guilt, but we like shift the blame a little bit. We like take the microscope off of us and put it somewhere else, right? Um, to follow my example from earlier where we're calling like our siblings or our cousins or whatever, like names and we get caught, we would say something like, uh... They did it first. They called me that, so I had to do this, right? Um, or we would say uh, something like, I'm sorry that my brother forced me to call them stupid, <laughs> right? I'm sorry that the actions of my sister forced me to hit her, right? Like, we just kind of like see the silliness of children when they do that, and yet we perform the same silliness before the Lord, right? You know, so the lesson in this is if you blame others 
for your wrong instead of just admitting to it, confessing it, and repenting, then your repentance ends up being as worthless as Saul's was. You'll notice that when you read this story, um, Saul does actually repent, right? He asks Samuel to like, please like restore him and let him worship the Lord. And when you get to the end of the chapter, a little bit of that happens. But did you notice that it doesn't really occur until he realizes that like he's losing the kingdom? That he's sort of like a, a rewards or blessing oriented repentance, Like how many of us would also make that same mistake where we would only be concerned with having violated the word of the Lord if something's going to be taken from us, right? Like we view God sort of like a vending machine and we say like, God, I'm interested in your word as long as you keep giving me these blessings and these nice things. And as long as like my violations of your word aren't going to like prevent those things from being in my life, then it doesn't really bother me. But the moment that you're actually going to start pulling that stuff out of my life, then I actually care about doing what you say, right? We do that sort of thing. It would be like with the children that we only say sorry to our brother or our cousin or whatever when we're told we're going to go to timeout, right? It would be as if only once we're going to be grounded do we actually care about saying we're sorry, right? And parents see through that kind of stuff, right? I know my parents did. They would be more upset with me about not being genuinely sorry than they were upset about me doing whatever it was I did, right? And can't you just see that playing out in this story that Saul's not genuinely sorry. He's not actually upset that he broke the commandment of the Lord, which is why Samuel is told by the Lord not to change his judgment of him. Um, And so in this story, I think we need to learn the lesson also that you only confess your sin, if you only repent of your sin to avoid consequences, then that's not a true confession. It's not really a real repentance. Um, I think we see both these lessons in this story. All right, so we've seen a lot of like what confession isn't. We've seen a lot of what repentance isn't. Um, Let's look at Saul's successor, David to see what it is. So go to 2 Samuel, and we'll go to chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So thus far, we've seen that uh, we should not defend our wrong, but rather confess it and change, right? Um, And if we don't do that, then uh, the fruit of our confession will just be silence and worthless. Uh, We've we've seen so far that if we blame others, if we do that shifting of blame, um, instead of just confessing and repenting, then that's also worthless and useless before the Lord. And we've also seen that um, if we only confess to avoid the consequences, then uh, that's not a real confession, nor is it a real repentance. But, But... The person that was alluded to in these two accounts, in chapter 13 and chapter 15, as being the one that would come after God's own heart, being the one that would rule in some small way, is David. Ultimately, I think it points us to Jesus being the true king. But in a linear fashion, in the kingdom of Israel's concern, and I think in some level to the prophecy, David is the man that does that. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Like Saul, he makes a mistake. He really blows it. He sins. 
unlike Saul, he actually confesses and he actually repents. And so we'll read that account for us here, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The background of this is that he's seen a beautiful woman we know named Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop, and he sends for her so that he could sleep with her. And upon doing that, he realizes like she's pregnant, and he's going to have to like do this big cover-up and has her husband killed in a battle intentionally. And so Nathan is in the role of Samuel, right? Samuel had to bring Saul these difficult messages from God, hoping that he would confess and repent. Now Nathan's having to do the same thing for David, right? So let's pick up in chapter 12, and we'll read verses 1 through 15 here. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms like it was a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he's done this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. If we were to continue reading this chapter, we would see a man who is totally distraught that he's put himself in this position. And by extension, he's put his unborn child in the position that it's in. He's put his family in this position. And as we read in the text, he's really put the nation in a position of ongoing battle, right? Like David was really bothered once he realizes he's that guy, right? When the metaphor, the, the imagery is offered to him, it really touches him. And you can see that he like fasts and praying for the child. He's not eating. Um, but you'll notice that in the text, there's a lot of similarities between him and Saul, but there's a very important distinction, right? Is that when you get to almost the end of our reading in verse 13, there's no like blame shifting there's no like silence like refusing to kind of acknowledge the situation there's none of that like you made me do this or this happened or whatever david's statement in verse 13 is simply put i have sinned against the lord 
You can imagine if he had the heart of a man like Saul, he might have said, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been on that roof. Like, she had to know I could see her, right? Or Uriah shouldn't have had such a beautiful wife. You know, he's a soldier. He signed up to, like, potentially die in battle. He was just doing his job. Like, he knew that could have happened to him, right? Like, there's all kinds of things that David could have said if he didn't have a humble heart, if he wasn't soft and listening to the truth that God was bringing to him through David. But he doesn't do any of that. It's personal, I. He's focused on the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord, right? He does everything that Saul doesn't do. All right, so like, what do we see in this? I think one lesson that we need to see in this is that God's message, like Nathan to David, reveals to all of us like how nasty some of our life has been, right? How sinful, how wicked, how against God that there are aspects of our life, choices that we've made in the past have been before God. But David also shows us that the hope of God's message is not just to like make us feel miserable just to feel miserable, but that we'll confess and we'll repent before the Lord, right? And you'll see the product in verse 14 of this text is not that God is like, yeah, that really stinks that you did that. Stinks for you. Too bad. That, that's a part of the idea of needing to confess and repent, but that's not it. God isn't doing this just to make David feel bad. He's doing this to move him to repentance so that verse 14 can occur, or verse 13, so excuse me, that David himself has his sins put away. All right? Remember Proverbs in 20, what did I say, 28, verse 13? The idea there is that you would obtain mercy, right? Those who forsake, confess and forsake their uh, transgressions in that, that text, obtain mercy. Those who don't do that, it says, do not prosper. Saul and David, by every measure of the world, had prospered, right? Like just, they were kings, they were powerful, they could command people to do this, that, or the other. They had wives, they had lands, they had palaces. They had everything that a person might consider as prosperous. And yet, what was it that Saul was lacking? Mercy. He never received the mercy of the Lord because he never, ever confessed and forsook his transgressions. And so... In God's eyes, guess what Saul wasn't? Prosperous. Meanwhile, David, in the same position, is the most prosperous man. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, we have the illusion that a man would come after God's own heart. It's spoken of David a couple different times. Acts, even reflecting back on David in the past tense, says that's exactly what he was. And it's because of instances like this that, not that he was perfect, but rather that when he realized he blew it, he sinned against God. What made him a man after God's own heart is he like took that on himself and he confessed and he repented. All of us can be men and women after God's own heart, not because we have no blemish, we've never made a poor choice, but because we can do the exact same thing. We can be confronted with the message of God and we can choose to confess and admit our sin and repent or not. So the lesson, being convicted by the message of God, should lead us to confession that owns what has been done and produces a repentance that is determined to leave that offense behind. Right. So go back to my silly example as children, right? If in this theoretical, because I'm sure none of us did this, scenario, 
where we said something mean to a, to a cousin or a brother or a sister or whoever, or we hit them or whatever the case may be. If in that scenario you ever experienced an immediate just sorrow, you're like, you know what, I did it and that was bad of me to do. And your parents, they heard you say it, and as soon as they heard you say it, they look at you and they give you that look, and you're like, oh, I know that look. I'm caught. But immediately, you feel bad about it. You say, yeah, I'm sorry I said that. You take your punishment on the chin, so to speak, and you make sure you don't do that again the rest of the day. You know how your parents feel about you? Really proud, actually. Like, they don't really so much dwell on, like, you know, your parents expect you to kind of mess up, right? They expect you to say stupid things and hit people when you shouldn't and all that. But what is impressive to your parents is that, like, you own it and you, like, actually the rest of the day you're really good. Like, that's, like, a really, like, exciting thing for a parent, I imagine. He's not doing much yet. And that's what God in kind of a, like, a small taste of, like, what God is doing for us, Right? Like, he wants us to own it. It's not like we're, like, tricking him by saying we didn't do it or shifting the blame or whatever. But he wants us to own it, and he wants us to change, you know? And so there's a lot of passages that we could spend time moving through. Uh, I don't think I would do them much of a service by, like, hitting them super quick. But I will just say this, that in Acts chapter 2, Jesus is identified as the, the one that brings conviction of sin. Um, you know, just like Samuel's role. And with Saul, just like Nathan's role with David, Jesus is the one for the rest of us that's in that position. He's brought to our attention. He brings us the message of God. He brings us in the most full sense the reality of the mistakes we've made. And he says, like, what are you going to do with that? Right? And in Acts chapter 2, the response of the people then was that they were pierced to the heart. And guess what they did? They confessed their sins. They repented of those sins, and ultimately doing both of those things in humility led them to obey God's commandment to be baptized. And guess what? God forgave all of them and poured out his Holy Spirit on all of them and worked within them to make them new people, right? There are so many texts like this. You know, there's texts that reinforce the idea that we can't blame shift, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, right? 1 John 1, 9 speaks of how we need to confess our sins to God, among other passages. James 5, 16 even says we need to be confessing our sins even to each other so that we can pray for one another. Right? In Acts chapter 8, verse 22, when we, pray, uh, when we repent of our sins before God, we can pray that he forgives us Right, as believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 when we were uh, pent of our sins before one another, it actually allows us opportunity to encourage each other, right? All of these things are to say that confession and repentance are not shameful acts. They're not things that we should feel like ashamed of, but rather are restorative acts. That we're not like, we're not covering up things that people wouldn't know about anyway. God knows it's there anyway. We're not hiding anything. Maybe some of our brothers and sisters even know some of these things. And so for us to confess and to pray and to repent is not doing us a favor to like not do them, but is rather restorative to do them, that we can be honest with each other, we can be honest with God, we can see ourselves for who we are, and it causes us to appreciate God all the more. Right? And so if you're a Christian, don't give up. <laughs> don't think 
like I did that that one time. And so like I've done my confessing and I've done my repenting. Be be a person that models that in your life. Like you're not going to have just blown it the one time. You're going to probably still do that from time to time, right? And so like keep wearing this heart of confession and repentance. Whenever God's word comes to you and you see some like disparity between your decision making in your life and that truth, be a person that continues to wear confession and continues to wear repentance and your brothers and sisters can pray for you and build you up. But if you're not a Christian, that means that like in a really important kind of practical way, you've never actually done the fullness of this. Because to be a believer, to be a Christian, is to be someone who's begun the lifelong process of confessing and repenting before God. And like in Acts chapter 2, maybe you have like acknowledged that you're not who you should be, but maybe you haven't ever really repented. Or maybe you've attempted to repent, but realized you didn't actually accomplish anything because you never were really actually willing to acknowledge you were bad in the first place, that you had done something sinful. If you're not a Christian, just know that like you can't be a Christian until you are willing to humble yourself and begin this process. There's no baptism for you. There's no forgiveness for you. There's no, as Proverbs 28, 13 would say for you, there's no prosperity in the mercy God's going to give to you if you're unwilling to confess and repent. Those two things preclude any other thing that comes to you in Christianity. Repent, uh, baptism, faithfulness, church community. You can't really have any of that the way that God's intending to give it to you without doing these things. And so I'd encourage you to think about that. I hope this lesson has been helpful for you. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, wherever you may be, I hope you've found some value in this. And I'd encourage you to think about these things. And if you need prayers of this group, if you have any requests, anything like that, uh, let someone know about that. Well, uh, after we're singing this song so that we can pray for you.